everybody. Welcome. You know, I always really enjoy my podcast, but today's a special day. My name's Stu Turley, President and CEO of the Sandstone Group, and I've got Patrick Moore, Dr. Patrick Moore. He is the sensible environmentalist. He has confessions of a Greenpeace dropout, and we're going to bring him back for his new book here in a little bit. I have had a blast reading this book. Patrick, thank you so much for stopping by the podcast. You're very welcome, Stu, anytime. And, you know, it really is quite a thing to have gone through the transition I did from being one of the leaders of Greenpeace to being a a Greenpeace dropout. And it wasn't my fault. They're the ones who changed, not me. But I'll tell you the story as we go along. I'll tell you, you know, if everybody needs to read this because you were born in 1947, I believe, somewhere around in there. And when you went in and you started going through this whole process, people don't realize what goodness you did. I'm sorry. I think of Greenpeace as a bunch of nutties, but I didn't realize the goodness that you in your first 15 years with Greenpeace was trying to do. Tell us about that. Well, it was the height of the Cold War, the Vietnam War, the threat of all-out nuclear war, and the emerging consciousness of the environment, all coming together at once in the early 1970s, late 60s, early 70s. It was the hippie era, and a lot of us decided we were not in favor of nuclear annihilation of the entire planet in a nuclear war for some reason or other. We just didn't think that was a good idea. So. A number of us, mostly highly educated people, professionals. I was one of the youngest at about 23 at the time. There were doctors and lawyers and engineers and scientists and a captain of a boat. And we all got on that boat and aimed our boat at Amchitka Island in the Aleutians, where the U.S. was conducting underground hydrogen bomb tests of up to five megatons, enough to blow a whole city right off the map. So. Two of our leaders, Jim Boland and Irving Stowe, even though they'd never known each other before this thing coalesced, were both Quakers, one from Philadelphia, one from New York, a New York lawyer and a Philadelphia engineer. Okay. And the Quaker uh, religion has a thing called bearing witness, which means that when an atrocity or crime is occurring, you must go to it and witness it with your own eyes and see for yourself what it is. And so that is what led us to the idea of sailing a boat across the Pacific from Vancouver, Canada, where Greenpeace began, right, to the island of Amchitka, where the nuclear bombs were going off. And in the meantime, we started getting quite a bit of press interest in this, right. that crazy people were going to do this. And we ended up on an island in the Aleutians, where the Coast Guard, because we were Canadians, said, you guys have broken the rule of customs. There's no customs agent there in this little island. Right. But we were supposed to have checked in somewhere else and we didn't. And so he arrested us all and uh, and told us we had to go back. And this made Walter Cronkite's evening news across the whole country. Wow. That these crazy guys were going up there and they were going to try and interfere with the, the biggest, most powerful organization in the world, the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, right. blowing off bombs. And uh, we won. President Nixon, not long after that, Canceled the remaining nuclear tests that were planned in that series, and the rest is history. Greenpeace had an incredible victory right there. We were somewhat handicapped by the fact that because we were going against the United States, people said, well, why don't you go to Russia and do this? Are you a bunch of commies or something? 
So we got the commie label a little bit because of this, because then we took on the French after that. Okay. Because they knew we sort of knew they wouldn't murder us. If we went after Russia, we knew they would probably murder us. Right. right? And we weren't going to do that because we're not Russian. No. We were stick to sticking to our own hemisphere kind of thing, you know, where where we might have a chance of surviving. Uh so that but then came the campaign to save the whales. Right. And I love that one. In, in 1975 was the first voyage after the first the three voyages, one against the US, two against the French. We beat right. them to they were setting off atomic bombs in the atmosphere still in the early 70s and wow. sending radiation all around the southern hemisphere and they weren't doing it in France by the way <laughs> neither neither was the United States in a way doing it way out in the Aleutian Islands where right. it was closer to Russia Japan and Canada except right. for Alaska it was closer than anywhere else in the US and we sort of said wow. maybe central Kansas would be a better place to do this <laughs> i vote new york city we had a now, sense but... of humor too that was one of the nice things about it is most of us did have a sense of humor cuz you need one in a situation like that well i'll tell you what uh, dr moore a uh, sense of humor is taking a look at your pictures in your book and then looking at you with and when you were i believe it was pugent sound when you were trying to stop an oil tanker from coming in to do a test. Is that when, when that yes, was? That's right. It was uh, Juan de Fuca Strait, uh, which is close to Puget Sound. And uh, the, the United States Coast Guard agreed to participate in an exercise <laughs> with like when, when, when the Alaska oil started coming down the coast, much of it going to Long Beach, where it's an easy place to come in. There's no islands in the way or straits or storms right. or much of anything. It's just a flat, straight coastline. But in, in Juan de Fuca Strait, there are huge storms in the winter, and there's lots of islands in the way. And so they had decided to only allow big super tankers to come in there, not the super big ones. The right. Exxon Valdez or it was a was the smaller kind right. compared to these things. That So they brought in the BT San Diego, which BT stands for big tanker. <laughs> And we decided, no, you should stick to the smaller smaller ones. They're easier to stop if you are coming towards a rock or something like that. It wasn't then, we weren't against oil particularly. We were just against oil spills because the one that happened in Alaska was a terrible disaster. And so yeah. we got out in, so, so we said, we're going to stop the tankers with our little rubber Zodiac boats, right? Which, how silly could you be? But no, we got in front of them. Right. And, but but the Coast Guard, just before this thing was going to happen, made a 2,000-yard exclusive zone where nobody could come without a permit or whatever. Right. So it was for our own safety that they were doing this, right? So they were basically drawing a line in the sand, which is exactly what you want them to do, because then right. you can cross it, right, and get into trouble and get in the newspaper <laughs> protesting the super tanker. So we did that, and it was really it, that one was actually funny, except for when they threw me down on the deck of a steel boat and handcuffed my arms behind my back here, where you're not supposed to put handcuffs up here. Right. You're supposed to right. put them back here because there's a lot of pinch points here, and they seized them up like that and oh. uh, shoved my face down in the steel. And my friend Rex, the photographer, got shots of all this. And then we were shown handcuffed together, going ashore and being fingerprinted. And now I can't get a Nexus pass to go into the United States because I got in front of a super tanker. And it says on the 
on the form you have to fill out to get the Nexus Pass, have you ever been convicted of a criminal offense? I have never been convicted of a criminal offense. Right. And I've you been were arrested charged. three times. Right. right. And I've been fingerprinted, but I've never even in, been, been in front of a judge, never mind uh, wow. convicted. And yet the Nexus people won't give me a pass because I was fingerprinted. And then, you know, we had a good lawyer, too, back in those days. He got me out of jail before dark three times, you know, and that's a wow. that's a good lawyer when you don't have to sleep in the cell. Oh, and, no. And it was all theater anyways. I mean, it wasn't as if we were robbing people or burning down police stations like they do these days. Oh, yeah. And they get away with it. No, I mean, we weren't into that sort of thing. We were happy bunch of hippies, you know, peace, love and joy. But we didn't want a nuclear war that, or and we didn't want giant oil spills and we didn't want 30,000 whales to be slaughtered every year in the Pacific Ocean by the Japanese and Russians. And that's what they were doing still in the right. mid 1970s. There was no need for it. We have all kinds of artificial oils and and, and petroleum right. distillate oils that are perfectly good. Yeah. You didn't need to have sperm whale oil anymore. The, the yep. meat is still frozen in some Japanese uh, freezer because there isn't any demand for it anymore. Right. All this time, they just kept it there. I think they end up using it mostly for pet food. And it's not right to take a huge, beautiful whale and make pet food out of it. No. So we went out there and got in front of the harpoons and it was really fun and and dangerous, but nobody got hurt on our side. And one of the funniest stories was we were told to take ballpoint pens, blue jeans and Playboy magazines to make a peace offering to the Russian whalers. Right. Oh, no way. <laughs> back then it was the Iron Curtain was still. Well, it was hadn't okay. been down long if it was down. And it, so there was still this thing right. where they wanted stuff from the West. And uh, so we jeans, sailed up to them and it was off the coast of California. And we looked like a bunch of hippies and we sort of were, but we were smart hippies. And. And so we yeah. went we went up to the boat and this guy looked down at us and said, Hey, you guys, got it any acid? <laughs> <laughs> just killed us. They didn't want blue jeans and ballpoint pins. They, they wanted they wanted acid. Some LSD. <laughs> I guess that's kind of hard to come by. Well, all they have to do is go to San Francisco now. And yeah. Well, we yeah. were kind of off San Francisco, so no wonder. They off, thought we were a bunch of hippies with us. Over at Hate Ashbury, I guess. Is yes, where that's right. <laughs> we were when and then when we we came into San Francisco after that harpoon went over our guys' heads into the back of a whale, and oh. we had the whole shot from the harpoon and the boat coming along and our boat and then the harpoon going across over top of our guys' heads and into the whale. Wow. That shot went around the world in one minute as soon as we got it on onto TV. Right. Uh, and satellite went everywhere around the world. You know, uh, your book, you say oil and electricity saved the whales the first time. And I, I really applaud that. And I think you getting in front of the harpoons and having that commitment, you were putting your commitment, you're putting your behonkas on the commitment line in front of a super tanker. You were also doing it when you were uh, stopping clubbing the baby seals. And I mean, you got the Bell helicopters and you were flying out there and you got arrested because you didn't follow. And in fact, one of the seals, you you got in trouble and the other guy didn't. I mean, tell us about the seals. And I was uh, marooned in a helicopter in a blizzard with Brigitte Bardot for a while. Oh, nice. Not bad, eh? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was. There were so many fun things about it. 
we didn't even mean to make it fun, but I was arrested for loitering in a temporary fisheries office during the seal hunt, right? And it, you couldn't make it up. No. You know, I walked into the, to the temporary, it was in a motel room. It was a temporary Department of Fisheries and Oceans office. They're in charge right. of the seal hunt. And there's a thing called the seal protection regulations, which is actually the seal hunt protection regulations. It's sort of like the Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> Does it's it actually do the it's... Inflation Act or the Inflation <laughs> Encouraging Act, right? So we had this thing called the, the seal protection regulations, which were meant to protect the sealers from anybody interfering with them killing the seals. And Wow. In that story, uh, your guys, was it you and another guy that stopped a uh, icebreaker? No, I was the photographer on that one. Uh, wow. It was Paul Watson and Bob Hunter, uh, my old colleagues. Uh, Bob is gone, unfortunately, and he was an incredible character. He was a journalist, writer, comedian around the dinner table. And uh, and Paul Watson is still active against the whaling in Iceland. Nice. Out there now, actually, uh, on his boat. And he just he he just decided to, that was going to be his life. And uh a lot of us went on to other things, and I've done a million things in, in, in since then. But that was a really amazing period of time, the time that we saved the whales. Isn't and that great? We, what we did was the International Whaling Commission is made up of countries, and they have country mm-hmm. delegations you know, coming to the conference every year to make the rules for whaling. And we stacked the membership with small island nations that weren't whaling. And actually, it was a tourist industry for them, for the humpback whales to be offshore, oh, stuff yeah. like that. So we got it stacked. Uh, it took about five years to do it. And by 1981, the International Whaling Commission voted a majority to ban world whaling worldwide. And only the Japanese have defied that. And this crazy guy in Iceland, who's the richest man in Iceland, I forget his name now, Lofton or something, but he's still going out and killing a few hundred humpback whales every year. And that's where Paul Watson is. So I support Paul for continuing to do that, of course. And uh, he's done quite a lot of other pretty amazing things in his career, too. We're all coming from those same roots, though, of we care. You see what one of the two reasons I left Greenpeace after 15 years. The first is when we started, we had a very strong humanitarian orientation to save humans from nuclear war. If Why would you bother if you didn't like humans, right? right. Then uh, somehow during the period of going forward, the, the peace kind of got lost. And that was the human part, right. peace for the people and green for the environment, right? So right. Uh, putting green peace together was, was clever and it happened by mistake. Mm-hmm. Someone said peace at the end of a meeting, which was what you did back then when you said goodbye. You're, right. You're, peace. peace yeah. brother, you know, and so and one of our guys said, why don't we make it a green peace? Just like that. And there and it, it was. It was born. And we changed our name from the Don't Make a Wave Committee, which isn't very memorable. <laughs> uh, but it, but it was because of the Alaska earthquake we that we were bringing up the idea that a five megaton hydrogen bomb on a, a, a big fault line, which the Aleutians is, could make a tsunami and. And and wreck our cities or something like that. But anyways, oh, yeah. Greenpeace was much better, and we went ahead with that. With that as first the name of our boat. Initially, we renamed the Phyllis Cormac, which was the the halibut boat that we right. John Cormac captain, and Phyllis Cormac, his wife, was the name right. of the boat. But just before we left, 
somebody came in the, with, with a plaque that said Greenpeace on it. And right. we said, why don't we nail that on the bow of the boat? And so it became the Greenpeace first before, right. before it was an organization called Greenpeace. The Greenpeace was the boat we were going to stop the right. bombing. And it had How that. Fun. And now, which one got you had um, a rainbow a, a warrior that and one we're of them was talking about up. already. That's the one that got bombed in New Zealand by the French. Right. That was 1985, just so, before I left. In fact, I was one of the I was one of five international directors for we had two uh, odds in, in Greenpeace International. We had the European group, which right. was France, Germany. Netherlands and London uh, and England were all national Greenpeace organizations. Okay. And then we had Canada, US, Australia, New Zealand. We called that Anzuska, which is the, you know, the letters put together. Right. And I was the a, a dir- the director for Canada on the international board. Right. So we Anzuska directors went to New Zealand to welcome the Rainbow Warrior in on its way to M- to uh Muroa, the atoll where these atomic bomb tests were going on. By that time, they'd gone underground. It took us two years, only two years, we forced them underground. So they, because they were the only country doing a lot of above ground nuclear testing, and they were doing it in the Southern Hemisphere, way away from themselves. And not any, no, no French citizens even knew about it because the, the French actually had a complete stranglehold on the media at that wow. time in the mid 1970s. Uh, so, we were the first people. We went to France uh, while our boat was on its way to uh, Moreau. We went to France and occupied the Notre Dame Cathedral. Oh, how cool! And said, "This is a church, and we are taking sanctuary here tonight." And the secret police sûreté came and said, "Sorry, you guys, this is not a church. It's a national monument, and we're taking you to jail if you don't leave at nine o'clock." <laughs> but that did it. It, it. Le Monde, the biggest newspaper in in France, told yeah. the story the next day to the French people that these pe- these crazy people were there protesting against the atmospheric nuclear tests. And that started the ball rolling. And it took two years of voyages into the atoll from New Zealand. It's 2,600 miles. So yeah. it was even way further than we had to go to get to the Aleutian Islands. But a how, small how sailboat. How days of yeah. a ship crossing it was, it was that? A, we went in a, in a 36-foot sailboat. That's nothing. I mean, that's small. It is. Yeah. But people do that. They go worldwide in in that 36 foot boat is considered sufficient for worldwide navigation with sail. And uh, it went in in the first year. The French boarded the boat and beat the captain and said that he and he and he he fell and really hurt around his eye because they truncheoned him. And the French said he had fallen while they were coming aboard. Right. They tried to make it seem, but Marie Anne Marie Horn was up up through a hatch at the bow with right. a camera and took pictures of the beating, and that made it in the newspaper the next morning with David with a big patch over his eye, wow. and that went worldwide. So it's those kind of th- you know if you can create enough drama, you get the attention, and that's what we were. That was our whole modus operandi was to get in the newspapers. There was one of your stories that you missed the opportunity to get the picture, and it was a pretty significant one. I can't remember. You guys were just we missed the opportunity to get the film footage of me sitting on the baby seal. Yes, we got the still footage, though. But it was really a shame because we had a color film 
sequence of being arrested by the RCMP and the fisheries department. And right. I was on top of the seal holding, like riding it, right? Right. With my hands under its front flippers. And I, you were trying to save him. It was a tough little bugger. But, um, and it was, they're strong. It's like yeah. they're half the size of me, these baby seals. So here I am riding this baby seal while everybody's around taking photographs. And, right. And, and of course, as soon as the fisheries officer touched me, I went peacefully, which right. was our modus operandi as well. Now, did your uh, your hair back then was about like this? I mean, uh, right? I'm, I am trying to return <laughs> to my hippie roots these days. But, uh, well, it's not looking too bad. You know? No, you look great. I, I I'm very jealous. <laughs> I didn't need the comb over back then, though. And even now, it doesn't really do much. <laughs> oh, no. my I had a comb over when the kids were little. And uh, when I take go out on the ski boat, I realized that when I had a flipper going up this way, it was time to get rid of the comb over. All right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we, we, we sit back and we, you know, social media would have changed you all. But you guys did phenomenal on getting the story out. I'm just amazed that it got out there that well. Well, it is it is amazing what you could do back then. I mean, we were on a old fashioned radio telephone on a boat half the time, <laughs> you know, sideband radio. But right. we got it out and we wrote it down and got it out in, you know, in good right. verbiage. And effect, we had a lot of effective writers that were professionals. Nice. Uh, Bob Cummings was a professional critic of music and uh, opera and right. symphony. You know, I mean, he, he could write a beautiful piece of prose. And we, that and Bob Hunter had a second front column on the Vancouver Sun, the biggest newspaper in Western Canada. Right. So we had good people and with with talent and with I, I was nicknamed quite quickly Dr. Truth because <laughs> I insisted on the what we put out was actually accurate. Right. Um, I made exceptions for it, especially when when Bob, we were, we were at a point where there was nothing to do. We'd, we we had to wait for the say for the Russians to come. And we were trying to make up stuff to right. keep people interested. And there's this myth that when the full moon rises, the sperm whale comes up out of the water and makes a silhouette in front of the full moon with a giant squid in its mouth. Right. And that's quite an image. Right. Yeah. And And so we. It was going to be the full moon. And so Bob got that story in newspapers all across the country that the whale might, that we were going out to see if we could be there when the whale jumped up with a squid in his mouth in front of the full moon. Of course, I'm sure nobody actually ever saw that in, in the history of the world, but it sounded good. But it does sound good and it makes a good graphic. So people made a graphic of it then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and published it with the story. So. It was it was a cool story. You know, I'm not against that kind of. Well, you did go out and look for it, right? We did go out and look for it. Yes. Yeah. It so just happens I, I it wasn't have, there, and all well, we we had to make a image image of it instead. Oh yeah. Hey, thank you everybody for listening to the first part of the Dr. Patrick Moore podcast. This is an exciting. Uh, discussion. I had an absolute blast visiting with Dr. Moore. In fact, we've got some more discussions coming up. We're going to be talking about his new book in, later on next month. So uh, also don't forget to subscribe, like, share, give us five-star reviews, and uh, really thank all of our wonderful listeners and all the great feedback. Thanks. And uh, we'll see you real soon.